Hello and welcome to Borough Talks, season of events and podcast on food and food culture by Borough Market. I'm Angela Clutton, I am the host of Borough Talks and you're about to listen to the recording of an event which was done in April 2021, a little over a year since pandemic hit and lockdowns hit and we really wanted to take a look at the food issues we'd all been experiencing over that year or so and take a little look ahead as to what might be next in terms of how we get our food, how we enjoy our food and how we feed ourselves with three wonderful guests, Anna Jones, Carolyn Steele, Kimberly Wilson, coming with different aspects of looking at the shape of cities, thinking about our food psychology, thinking about sustainability, really rounded discussion, and I hope very much that you enjoy it. Hello everybody and welcome to uh, Borough Talks, which is Borough Market's events and podcast series on food and food culture. Um, I'm Angela Clutton, I'm a cook and a food writer and uh, do various things at Borough Market, including being the host of uh, the Cookbook Club and also the host of this series, Borough Talks. Lovely to be back. This is our third series, so it's very, very exciting to be back. Um, and speaking of lovely panellists, um, Kimberly, Carolyn, Anna, um, please make yourselves known to our audience and welcome to Borough Talks, you guys. Hi. You all did that at the exact same moment. That was like perfectly on cue. We've done this before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, I'm going to explain to the audience what I explained to you three at the beginning, that I... I'm just out and proud that you guys are incredible. And to have this panel for you know, the beginning of this series of Borough Talks, I think is uh, very exciting. And I think we're going to have a brilliant conversation. Um, and it's a quite a big topic we're here to talk about today. Um, and so it may be a little whistle stop, but I hope it will whet people's appetites to kind of maybe think about things more and find out a little bit more. Because what we want to do and explore with you guys today is thinking about what the last year in terms of the pandemic and food has taught us, what what changes have we experienced, what stresses, what opportunities maybe if there are some, and how will those things affect our relationship with food and food culture moving forward? So we are going to be thinking about where we get our food, where simply where we do our shopping, thinking about um, ideas around sustainability, thinking about home cooking, um, and thinking about dining out, which is you know a, a new a new joy recently back in our lives. Um, and so there's quite a lot to get through, but I think they're all ideas which hopefully will interconnect um, and be quite easily easily got through in 45 minutes or so. Um, I'm going to just do some quick biogs uh, for our lovely panellists, um, just in case anyone doesn't already know how brilliant they are. Um, so Anna Jones, right, I have all your books here. Anna, recently published one, One Pot Pan Planet, brilliant cookbook. Um, Anna Jones Cook, a writer, the voice of modern vegetarian cooking and the author of several books all on my bookshelf. Um, One most recently. When did one come out, Anna? Um, It came out in March, the beginning of March. And it's doing pretty well? Yeah, yeah, it's been, it's been, I'm very grateful. It's been on the bestseller list for six weeks now, which is, I mean, very proud of. So yeah. And well, well deserved. Um, I'll let you say this really bit, uh, I'm going to say this as well, that Anna believes that vegetables should be put at the centre of every table and led by the joy of food and its ability to affect change in our daily lives. So we're going to be probing much more into that. Um, Carolyn Steele, Hungry City. I mean, brilliant, brilliant book. And also um, Zootopia. See, I'm raiding my bookshelves here. Zootopia, brilliant book. Um, Carolyn Steele, leading thinker on food and cities. Award-winning uh, 2008 book, Hungry City, the one I just held up. International bestseller. And the concept of Zootopia, food place, has gained broad recognition across a wide range of fields in academia, industry and the arts. Um, and I think I'm right in saying, Carolyn, that the paperback version of Zootopia is just about to come out? It just came out, actually, yes. So you can fit it in your pocket now. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't see why anybody wouldn't want to. Uh, <laughs> <big> and, <laughs> and Kimberly Wilson, Kimberly, um, happily back on Borough Talks, which is lovely. Kimberly joined us last May, I think. Um, and we were talking a lot about um, how to build a healthy brain, another brilliant book. Um, Kimberly Wilson, chartered psychologist and lecturer based in central London. Uh, how to build a healthy brain. When did that come out, Kimberly? It came out two weeks before we went into lockdown. It came out kind of, uh, yeah. 5th of March last year. Which I suppose, well, good timing, bad timing? Half and half. It, it meant that there were like fewer, you know, all the, all the festivals were kind of closed, but I think lots of people found solace and, and comfort and 
uh, inspiration in book, books at that time. So yeah, it was a, a mixed bag. But. Well, it's lovely to have you back on Borough Talks. Um, Kimberly's philosophy of whole body mental health, the comprehensive approach to mental health care, integrating evidence-based nutrition and lifestyle factors with psychological therapy. And you may be thinking you recognise Kimberly from Great British Bake Off and you'd be completely right because Kimberly was a finalist um, in Bake Off. But uh, well, that will come into this as well, probably. But what's interesting in terms of why it's so great to have Kimberly back is the connection between brain health and mental health and food. And so it's completely wonderful to have you guys here. Um, let's get stuck into it because I say there's a lot we want to talk about um, as we go through. Going to start with a line from Anna from your book, from your introduction. You say in there that food is a great connector and has immense power for change. And that idea, I think, is probably central to what we're going to kind of be looking at for the next 50 minutes or so. But let's think about where we were this time last year when the pandemic had not just started, but lockdown. You know, we were we were deep into lockdown and it felt and certainly a lot of people were experiencing that the supermarkets were under pressure and that potentially our food supply was under pressure. Um, Karen, I'm going to come to you, first of all, for this and ask you um, if you can answer a big question quite quickly and maybe explain a little bit behind why those food shortages happened a little bit about the just-in-time system that the supermarkets re rely upon and, and that therefore can make us vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, I love that line from Anna. I mean, I, I, I also say that food is a great connector and can change the world. So I think our brains are sort of wired up in space. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's very, very obvious that, uh, as, as you say, we, we have this kind of, I mean, very stripped down, super efficient. And I put huge inverted, uh, you know, commas around the word efficient because efficient means stripping out the human. It means stripping out time. It means stripping out nature. Um, but anyway, I, I mean, the, the shorthand here and the important thing to say is that, you know, for about the last century and a half, we've been moving towards this highly industrialized food system whose aim is to create this complete fiction called cheap food that doesn't actually exist. So everything I'm going to say is in the context of that. Um, the, the empty supermarket shelves, I mean, people talked about this. I mean, obviously it was a big shock to many people because it was the first time they'd ever get, gone to their local supermarket and see, I mean, interestingly, in many parts of the UK, there was plenty of fresh, fresh food left but what people were panicking over was the tin tomatoes and the pasta, because apparently that's what most people's idea of lockdown food was. And, you know, I think it was very shocking, A, to see, you know, the shelves emptying out, but also, you know, I mean, stories of young men wrestling grannies to the ground for the last tin of tomatoes, you know, and just the general sense that, you know, I mean, very famously, there's this famous quote that we're three days away from anarchy, or, you know, because basically there's only ever about three days worth of food in the country. And that is because of, as you say, the just-in-time system. Sorry, I'm gonna try not to talk for 45 minutes. Uh, just the just-in-time system is basically taking the slack out of the system. So basically when you go beep on a supermarket, you know, checkout, that sends an automatic signal to the warehouse to say, we need another packet of rice or whatever it is. And then that goes straight to the producer and everything is, structured to be delivered just in time which means there's no slack in the system whatsoever there's no storage because storage costs money um and of course as we saw when you know ever given got its rear end stuck in the sand in the Suez canal you know we have an incredibly fragile food system um and for me you know what was really interesting is a how rapidly the supermarkets were able to respond so as it were the surface problem went away but of course, the deep fragility in the food system has not gone away. You know, so I mean, very often, I mean, a bit like, um, you know, Anna was saying, um, I mean, my book also came out the, the week lockdown was, no, that was Kimberly, actually, wasn't it? Sorry, Kimberly. <laughs> the, you know, it also came out the week the pandemic was declared. And I've spent a year basically talking to people about, you know, how COVID has just shone a light on all the things that were already wrong with our food system and with the way we were living, but were kind of just about still ignorable. And now yeah. they've all become unignorable. Yeah, um, I, think I think that's the thing, Carolyn. And you know, Kimberly, I'm interested to get your take on how that 
how how that was experienced by us at this point last year when you know for the because Carolyn's just said you know, broadly speaking the the you know, the supermarket system which you know underlies so much of our food system I and mean, we obviously we're going to be talking about small producers and markets in a second but I, I don't think we can ignore you know the supermarket element of this at the top but I'm curious Kimberly as to your 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 sort of take on how I say how we experienced that what impact that had. Yeah, I think what was very, very apparent was the people suddenly became very aware. This time last year, I was writing lots of articles about why people were hoarding, you know, why people were suddenly rushing to the supermarkets and buying 17 packs of toilet roll and rice and flour <laughs> and all this sort of stuff. Um, and to me, I was just like, well, of course we are. Of course we're, we're hoarding food for lots of different, very symbolic reasons, that, that, that what food represents to us. So humans are very uh, symbolic ritualized creatures everything we have has a different kind of meaning and food is one of our most symbolic substances you know it means something in terms of you know birthday cake means something festival foods mean something we have rituals around food dinner time christmas time all of that so our food is imbued with so much meaning and and part of that meaning is safety you know knowing that you've got enough food in the cupboard knowing that you've got enough you know you know where your next meal is coming from you know this is a a it's it's, it's a shorthand for feeling safe do I know where my next meal is coming from? Do I have enough? And what the pandemic did was create this huge kind of sea level rise in our anxiety, but crucially in, in what's called uncontrollable stress. So lots of different types of stress. Humans don't really like stress. The stress we like the least, the stress that we find most difficult to manage is uncontrollable stress. We, you know, we're fine with a deadline if you know that what you've got to do and, and how you're going to hit it. But if you don't know what's, being demanded of you then you're overwhelmed and so what food did for us and what shopping and hoarding did for us was to give us this illusion of control or a tiny little fragment a piece mm -hmm. of control in this very new very frightening situation where we felt like nothing made any sense you know we suddenly we were locked in our houses everything that we took for granted about freedom about our lives about our health and safety had been turned upside down and so we were hunkering down and looking for the things the rituals the activities that would make us feel safe and, yeah. and hoarding food is one of those yeah and yeah as carolyn said uh, you know at the beginning of, of her answer there seemed like there's a shortage but actually there was plenty of food but maybe not on a particular supermarket shelf for very particular reasons which carolyn did a gorgeously succinct and <laughs> uh, explanation of how those systems work yeah. because you know with you know this is the borough market's uh, event and you know, if you were down at the market this time last year you wouldn't have had any trouble finding eggs you wouldn't have had any trouble you know finding pasta you wouldn't have any trouble finding any of these things and the same would you know be true for small markets and small producers mm -hmm. around and Anna I'm interested to get your take on you know, what I felt at this point last year was that um, because of uh, partly because of what Kimberly's been explaining about the whole sort of you know, emotional reaction to things partly because of what Karen was explaining um, there was a real benefit almost for small producers who were able I think to sort of you know, come out of this little bit and, and people were more drawn to wanting to kind of get things from I was saying to Kimberly earlier there was a point where I felt my doorbell was going like three or four times a day with you know, exciting <laughs> produce or booze arriving from you know somewhere fabulous in the country from a small producer Anna did you feel that was an experience which was happening not like that experience. I think there were very two two very different experiences. I think you know I live in in London and 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 wh where I was there wasn't there didn't really seem to be a shortage. You know there's lots of corner shops. You know it's much more shopping in small um, you know independent places than than supermarkets. You know in this particular part of London where I live but definitely you know my parents my husband's parents who are much more reliant on the kind of supermarket systems they really were experiencing the shortages and I think it sort of shone a light on how you know how we 
shop and I know that, that that lots of people have changed their behavior but absolutely I think some brilliant brilliant organizations have you know sprung up or or, or or you know the spotlight has been put on them a bit by the pandemic you know the amazing farms to feed us um, organization I don't know if you guys have heard of that but it's you know a national database of all the farmers who are prepared to sell direct to consumers um, and you know the fact that, that didn't exist before is it's kind of bonkers really isn't it that we didn't have access to you know that direct route to our farmers um and things like you know food chain which is, is a brilliant um you know sort of app that connects producers and smaller shops directly with consumers I think you know has it, it's been brilliant and I think for a lot of people it really really has um you know actually just shone a light for them on the stuff that Carolyn was talking about on the fact that you know our food system is an incredibly delicate thing and actually really you know if we want good quality food if we want the food that you know is is reliable and the food that supports a food system we want to see and we want to sort of live in then actually you know buying from those sources is a much more responsible way to do it. Anna is your impression that that change in behaviour which you just referenced which I'm going to come back to both Carolyn and Kimberly to tap into do you feel that that has sustained through the pandemic and is sustaining as we begin to emerge from that change of behaviour and how people are buying their food? I think there has been so much more home cooking that I think people have had to engage in where their food crumbs comes from a little bit more you know I think I added up the other day how many meals we had collectively cooked and we were you know since the beginning of the pandemic and I think we were well over sort of 1300 meals and that was a few weeks ago so we've all been cooking a lot um you know I you know I'm a positive person and I'm very hopeful that you know that, that experience for people that Kimberly was touched on there, that very shocking and very kind of shaking experience of not being able to get flour or eggs or these very basic things which feel like almost like a God-given right. Um, you know, when that was taken away, I think it really did shake people up and, and connect them hopefully with that chain, with, with the delicacy of things a little bit more. Kimberly, that idea of um, changing behavior I'd be interested to get your take on that and the and the yeah, the, the long term uh, possibility of that. I suppose Can, I suppose if if anxiety and stress was behind behaviour changing, is that a platform for building long term change? <laughs> this is a good foundation. We just make the most of it. Um, I think anxiety and stress are one thing. The other thing, though, is ease and convenience. The other thing about the human brain is that as wonderful and as gorgeous and complex as it is, it's also in a sense quite lazy and it will always take you to the easiest thing, you know, the, the weakest link in the chain, the, the root of least resistance. And that's where up until this point, you know, supermarkets had the, the, the monopoly, you know, everything under one roof and, and that's all fine. The, I think the skill and the key to sustaining that kind of change in terms of working with small producers, shopping locally is, can those producers make it as easy for the consumer as possible? So the more apps, the more home deliveries, you know, the, the more that it's kind of on your doorstep and it's either a better, uh, it's more convenient or a better experience or you can get you know better variety it's you know that sort of thing yeah. that's going to be I think a bigger factor than the panic because I think once we've calmed down once we feel like it's safe again and we've come back into the world we're going to revert to the thing that is as easy and as convenient for us as possible and so there's a, a pinch point there's a moment here where those organizations who want to keep a foothold that they might have gained during the pandemic and during lockdown need to work on that uh, yeah. feature, how to make it as easy as possible. Caroline, can I, Caroline, can I bring you in on mm. that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's so interesting. And I was just nodding away there. Um, but because, you know, I think I think what Kimberly's touched on is really important because, you know, I, I think there is we are, this is probably the best chance we're going to have in a generation to really rethink the way we live. And as both Anna and Kimberly have already said, you know, there have been amazing positives that have come out of lockdown, but there, there have been amazing negatives as well. And, you know, to me, these things need to be seen as the core of a complete rethink of the way we live that goes beyond food. And of course, 
in a way, my thing is seeing beyond food to how food shapes everything in our lives. So to take Kimberly's point there, for example, I think it's such a brilliant point. I mean, I've said for years, how did supermarkets manage to persuade us that going to them was convenient? There's absolutely nothing convenient about it at all. You know, you have to work out kind of two weeks ahead what you want to eat. You have to go and find a place in a car park. You have to wade through all of this heavily managed, heavily kind of, you know, processed sort of nudge territory that's trying to flog you chocolate when you actually went in for lettuce. You know, I mean, it's just... Um, and then you've got to work out how to sort of cook all this stuff when you come home. I mean, and, you know, and supermarkets, of course, are not in cities. They're somewhere out in the sticks that suit food, food logistics, not the way we actually live. So, you know, <laughs> I think there's an amazing opportunity to sort of say, well, you know, this small scale kind of networks that both Anna and Kimberly have mentioned, you know, where the food's much higher quality. I mean, they're really incredible, you know, organic box scheme type things like, you know, sort of... Um, uh, riverside organics or people like that who you know the, the farm you know that the food is good you know it's grown ethically and sustainably and you can choose off a list just like you would choose if you're ordering avocado just so really, sorry can I say one thing I found interesting about that is Borough's own online with it's you know, through good 60 because i have you know having you know, happily been working with the market for you know, like five or so years so for me the market experience up until the last year has been about going down there going to the stores having that interaction choosing pointing at that piece of fish exactly. or you know about cauliflower or whatever I, I but still being able to have the fabulous produce and uh, produce which i which i know its provenance but being able to get that online and delivered feels exactly. feels like a sea change I, I, I it is it is a potential sea change but of course i mean there's so many things to say but i mean just just to make the point and it's a very very important point that you just made we mustn't design a world where everything's just online to me that is an absolute catastrophe and i'm really really passionate that we keep real physical food spaces. So for example, I live actually, as it happens in a Georgian neighborhood of, of Lunds, more or less central London. If I look out of my window, because I live near a corner, there are four shops that used to be shops, you know, and that would have been my baker, my greengrocer and my butcher. It's not anymore, it's just estate agents or it's being converted into houses. So that would have been my idea of convenience, but it also would have been social. You know, because I would have left my house and I would have gone and met a human in the act of buying food, which to me is critical. This is how cities evolved. I mean, maybe we can get into this conversation later, but, you know, cities evolved around our shared need for physical things. And food was the absolutely primary one among them. And then that engendered sociability and the swapping of news and gossip and, and, and so on and so on. And, you know, with, with the great question of what is what are cities for, literally, that we're asking now, it seems to me that the physical presence of food is really critical. And I'm sure we can come on to discuss that in greater depth. And if, if, if somehow we don't, because I can already look at the clock and think, oh my goodness, um, if somehow we don't, everyone just needs to pick up Hungry City and read about it. And well, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 because it's all there and it is mm. completely fascinating. Mm. I just want to um, just bring you in onto some of the aspects of what Carolyn was just saying about um, the importance of communicating over food. Mm. And it will come on to restaurants you know, in a little bit. But if, if your food, however wonderfully sourced, is only arriving in a box at the doorbell, what are we all missing out on by not stepping out of our door? And, you know, and you know, over the last year, we've needed that. But looking beyond where we are now, look, you know, looking a bit more long term about our food habits, mm -hmm. what are we what are we missing? Yeah, I, I think it's a fundamental human quality is to eat together. You know, it's part of our evolution was that kind of campfire experience. In fact, we couldn't feed ourselves, you know, me on my own out trying to hunt or, or gather, I'm not gonna do very well. Our, our success was working in groups to gather or to hunt together and then eat together. And, and you know, famously the root of the word companion is to break bread, the person that you eat with. Um, and so, so much about who we are as a species is about that contact 
over food. I, I have a personal theory also that that's partly about the, the reason that we build bonds is because in order to eat and in order to digest, you have to be in a parasympathetic state, a kind of breast relaxation, um, digestion, physiological nervous system state. And, and that's about safety. So the people that you eat with are the people that you feel safe with. Um, and so it all becomes part of the shared experience. I think we lose a huge amount if, you know, you know, as convenient as it is, I think we lose a huge amount in terms of building trust, building safety, but also understanding where our food comes from if we lose full contact with it. Um, and, and beyond that, if we're talking just about physical health, what we know is that food that you have kind of touched, prepared, you know, made with your hands is for lots of different reasons, much better for your physical health and your mental health than a very ultra processed, very kind of supermarket based, no human has touched it in its entire process um, kind of, of food. So there are lots of parts of this where the human contact is essential for our well-being. Yeah. Anna, we were talking um, before about small producers and a, and, a, and a growing awareness of and concern about where our food comes from. And obviously we all hope that will continue. Um, I'm interested to get your take on home cooks and, and, and concerns about sustainability uh, you know, in, in, in a broad sense around food. And so thinking about waste and thinking about food miles and thinking about you know, where their food comes from. Have you seen over the last year a change within home cooking about how people are concerned or feeling about those things? I think, I think there definitely has been a shift. And I think as we've sort of been discussing, you know, wildly on all, all of these topics, I think it's it's trying to find a way of kind of maintaining that change. But, you know, as, as, as both Carolyn and Kimberly were talking then, you know, I really think the sustainability conversation goes hand in hand with the kind of people and the connection with people around food. Because, you know, I, you know, I think if we have that connection, if we know that farmer, if we've touched that tomato, if we have bought that thing off that green grocer, then, you know, we are less likely to throw it in the bin. We are less likely to kind of, you know, take it for granted. Um, you know, I think that chain of, you know, the people, you know, even if you're thinking about, you know, the supermarket packer or the or the lorry driver who might have driven, you know, the the food to your supermarket, it doesn't all need to be about farmers markets and and that kind of thing. I mean, fantastic if it is, but that's not, you know, realistic. I really think, you know, having those people in your mind and 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 really having that connection with that chain of people that have got your food to your plate, I think, you know, really shifts how I think about the value of my food and sustainability. Um, but I do think there's been some really good news in terms of food waste. I think people have been, um, you know, much more ingenious with their ingredients. I think people have become more confident cooks just because they've cooked a lot more. I think people have become more confident to swap things because we had that chunk of time where, you know, we, we couldn't go to the shops for that bunch of coriander or whatever else. So I, I, I I think that definitely I hope this year we've become better cooks more confident cooks less wasteful cooks yeah. and um, I'm going to interrupt you quickly to give some love for one because <laughs> all those things you just talked about are well there are you know, every page of this book is filled with those ideas whether it's one of your essays or you know the beautiful recipes and I think the one of the things that you achieve so brilliantly in this is it's touching on all those ideas which you know, we, we hope and believe are becoming more prevalent to people's shopping habits and the way they cook and live but I think what you do is what you just sort of said as well that be realistic about it and I think you manage to not make people feel guilty or over pressured into doing these things and that's surely a really important part of of being successful with the approach. I think it is and I think you know we don't need you know a small amount of sort of very very perfect you know vegan food activists whilst those people are brilliant and amazing and I absolutely stand behind them we need you know everyone doing the little bits they can and as much as they can you know each day within their budgets within their family situation within their you know lifestyle um so and I, I think I say in the intro to the book I think it's something like 30,000 decisions we make every day so I like to think of that as I wake up every day with you know 
an enormous amount of opportunities to make some positive change. And I think if you sort of frame the sustainability conversation around that, perhaps take away the guilt, you know, for me, that feels a good positive way to sort of, you know, get people enticed and excited to, to make some positive change. Yeah, I think that's very nice. And surely, Kimberly, you know, uh, psychologically, people are, if people are not being overpressured or overguilted, presumably they're more likely to respond to something. Yeah, I think so. I think the more that you can emphasize, again, the pleasure, but also the ease of something. And, and one of the things that really puts people off is cooking of any kind is that assumption that it's going to be difficult and or that you can get it wrong. We're very sensitive to embarrassment. We're very sensitive to shame, the idea that we're getting something wrong. So the idea that you know, there is one way of cooking something or it has to look like this and it needs to be perfect. And if you can't take a picture and didn't put it on Instagram, it doesn't count. <laughs> um, it needs to be dispelled and it needs to be a much more gentle look. People have been cooking for hundreds of thousands of years, mostly in one pot. It's fine, you know, and, and that the emphasis should be on the exploration, the experimentation and, and the pleasure um, alongside the nourishment. Carolyn, um, I keep bringing you in straight after Kimberly, but it's turning into quite a nice little sort of you know, rotation of ideas. Because <laughs> you're all flowing gorgeously around each other. Um, Carolyn, I'd love to bring you in there about home cooking and the place of the kitchen in the home, physically and otherwise, and uh, the roles, in inverted commas, of you know, women at the moment and the pressure to cook and, and all mm. of that. So I'd love to, to get yeah, your thoughts on that. There's so much to say there. By yeah, the way, I'm going to be reading Anna and Kimberly's book straight after this. They both sound absolutely amazing. Anyway, but um, no, I mean, I think I think I mean cooking as 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 indeed both Anna and Kimberly have said. I mean, you know, we we evolved through the shared problem of how to eat, and you know, cooking was a communal enterprise. You know, and I often say, you know, you hunt, I cook is the oldest social contract in history because basically it was how we divided our labour in order to, to eat better, basically. And that's how we grew our brains and that's how we evolved conversation and sharing. And, you know, I often also say that the, the shared meal is the oldest and still the best economy we've ever invented because we're very good at sharing through food. So I think, you know, that's a whole set of things to say. And, you know, I think where it all kind of started to go, as I say, there's so much to say about this, but I mean, where, it, where in a way it started to go pear-shaped, was with the invention of the nuclear family. You know, because we're actually not designed to live in tiny little units of one, two or three. We're actually much more comfortable in a kind of band, which is how we evolved, where the cooking and everything else indeed was shared. And actually, if you look historically at how we used to live, households used to be big extended households in Northern Europe, just like they are still in, in many other parts of the world, where cooking is a social thing. You know, and it's not just one person's responsibility. I mean, the, you know, the matriarch might be in charge, but lots of, you know, everyone else will sort of pitch in and help. And it's kind of going all, all day long as, again, as Kimberly said, it was the pot on the fire. So I think when it becomes really difficult is when, you know, as you say, um, in the 20th century, you know, you get this kind of division of work where the, the man goes out to work and the, the woman's stuck at home and is expected to cook. And it was just, it's associated with, you know, effectively deprivation, you know, women being sort of stuck at home, um, which historically hadn't been the case. And, you know, I think we've got this kind of mindset now, and, and indeed it's an ancient mindset in some ways, um, that cooking is a low status thing to do. You know, so important people don't cook for themselves. Um, and I mean, of course, people like me who live on, I, I live on my own and the cooking is frankly my greatest pleasure. <laughs> and, you know, cooking and eating are, are basically sort of the things I look forward to most. Um, but I totally accept that, you know, if you're hassled and again, you can't have this discussion without having a discussion about what a capitalist system does in kind of, you know, driving down wages so nobody has any time, so they're all too busy and, you know, all the rest of it, um, which is why I often say, indeed I do say, that you can't ask a question about food and the food system and food culture without asking broader questions about the broader economy and culture. Um, but, you know, I'm sure, you know, many people who are now expected to cook as well as work, as well as look after the kids, as well as, you know, um, keep the house clean, 
were given a decent wage and, you know, sort of 50 hours a week to do that work, they'd have a very different view of the work. You know, in other words, it's this, this tight, a huge chunk of the economy that's not in the economy. <laughs> um, and we have to deal with these problems. And I mean, just one other thing to say, sorry, is that, you know, we've got a crisis of work. Um, you know, there are, the, the, we're running out of meaningful things for people to do because, again, as I, as I say, capitalism strips the human out of everything. Um, so, you know, it just seems to me that if we value food again and if we pay properly for food, and this is a revolutionary idea because it's a complete, you know, new idea of what, how the economy would work, then, you know, when, when food is valued and cooking is valued and growing is valued, then there is no greater pleasure on earth than being involved in food and in feeding people. So I, I think from the question of, are we going to cook in future and who's going to cook? We actually have to sort of restore the pleasure in it, which, which as I say, um, is actually a revolutionary idea because you can't do that without rethinking um, mm. major aspects of how we live our lives, which COVID might help us to do, by the way. In what way, Carolyn? Well, because we've discovered we can work from home. I mean, this is really interesting. <laughs> You know, that's what I wanted to come said, on to. You know, that's exactly it. Yeah, I mean, basically, there was a very interesting study by the Food and Countryside Commission actually during the first lockdown. And, you know, 42% of people interviewed said that they valued food more as a result of the of the lockdown. I mean, I know that was a year ago and people probably got a bit fed up with their own five recipes by now. But, you know, people were wasting less. They were cooking more with their families. And, you know, I think... I think that's the core of the way we have to go forward, you know, and, and without it being oppressive and to do with lockdown, but actually about giving people their you know, time back. Um, that is the core of the good life, the kind of good life we need to be building going forward, because the pleasure is coming out of things that we have to do anyway. And that is the philosopher's stone when it comes to sustainable living to get this was Epicurus's great, brilliant light bulb moment if you can get pleasure out of the stuff you have to do then that is a good life and yet at the moment whenever we talk to somebody about you know, emerging out of lockdown and how nice it's going to be to be able to go back to restaurants and things almost everybody puts their head in their hands and you know andy was just saying about you know how many you know, dishes you think you guys have cooked over the last year everyone puts their head in their hands and goes oh my god i can't bear cooking anymore and so it's very difficult to marry that with the pleasure argument when at the moment I guess we all feel a little overwhelmed with the amount yeah yeah I mean we've lived through the most insane year of most of our lives you know so of course you can't use that as a blueprint and I mean even I at times even I who just you know live for food really have occasionally thought oh I'm not sure that I can really face this but you know um but that's not to say that we haven't discovered that actually you know within a kind of a broader context people can really really enjoy cooking and do enjoy cooking and of course it will I mean I often say that you know the situation we're in at the moment is a bit like one of those Swedish pressure mattresses you know kind of we've just you know you know the ones where you get out of it but the mattress stays the same shape as it was when you were in it so even as we come out of lockdown I think a lot of the sort of the weirdness will take a while to to wear off before we find our new balance and then I think within that new balance um people will they will have got skills incredible skills and as both Anna and Kimberly said you know connection to producers they never thought they could have before that's not going to go away so that's something we can really build on you know without saying to someone yeah you've got to cook 1300 meals <laughs> between now and Christmas um which would not be a good thing to say yeah <laughs> and do you feel that you know in, in with one coming out and therefore you know, presumably you've been you know, engaging a lot you know with people who've been buying it and sending in their pictures and all those things that you know people brilliantly do do you feel that as we are emerging from lockdown there is a bit more of a, a pleasure in cooking kind of coming back I think I think there is I think um people are desperate for new recipes desperate for new ideas as I as I am too I mean I'm I, I'm with Carolyn I absolutely you know food is my great joy um but there have been points this year especially you know cooking for a family um you know my five-year-old who you know is much more selective about what he eats than I would uh, than I would like um so there definitely have been those sort of pressure moments um but I do think that people you know I think I think it's really um positive actually and I think it's really encouraging that people are you know searching out new recipes I've got you know 
lots and lots of friends who really were just too busy before this this year to actually make any food everything was you know bought or it was you know one of those you know cook it you know kits where you sort of get all the spices in small little tablespoonfuls which you know there is a place for because I think you know as a first step into cooking fantastic um but this year you know they they have really really been cooking so I think there has been a big shift um for a lot of people. Um, I had the pleasure of doing the first lockdown. I, I was, uh, Carolyn, you were making me think of it. I had, I had the pleasure of doing the first lockdown with my mom and dad. And so um, there was my mom and dad, my husband, myself and my son. And it just reminded me actually of how, you know, that was so wonderful because, you know, we were really sharing the cooking. There was, you know, it felt actually much more economical to be cooking. Mm -hmm people um it felt much more joyous it felt like meal times were much more of a thing and I've actually really missed that you know being back just my son my husband and me um so yeah I yeah. think that um it's a really good point and I think it connects us to something Kimberly was saying earlier and, and to dining out culture which I want us to come on to but I think I feel I should remind the audience that if you um have questions you would like to throw into this please do use the Q&A function on uh, zoom and i'll be able to look at those and pass them on to the guys that um kimberly uh you uh, saying something which i think connects with what anna was just saying about um eating together and the importance of those contacts and how you know, that really matters to kind of you know, sit over a table and eat with someone and eat with different people you know i've had only my, my only my husband here and so we have every meal together and I love Nadora into bits but I feel <laughs> I feel like I need to speak to somebody else over food much as I love Nadora into bits um and so I think that probably is behind why a lot of us are so excited about restaurants opening up but also there are anxieties I feel that some people are feeling about kind of going back out into restaurants and things yeah, I, I think so. Uh, uh, and slightly segue though, the other, just you kind of talking about sitting and with the same person, one of the things around food and well-being that we've seen um, really worryingly is the rise of eating disorders. And one of the things about eating disorders is that they thrive in secrecy, they thrive in isolation because you don't have someone saying are you okay noticing the way that you're eating the way that you're treating your food you know um and so on a, on a much more kind of quotidian level just being out and eating with someone is about that normality and that normalcy and 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 the connection I can see you I'm with you I care about you and we're eating together it's because I trust you and something important happens there um, I think with restaurants I think it's going to be a bit of a mixed bag I personally I'm willing to throw my money at any passing chef <laughs> in the street I'm ready to go so you know there are a group of people who are who cannot wait but of course there are going to be people who are anxious about a the safety you know the number of people the kind of the way that the the the, the organization the restaurant is is managing the the safety and um the regulations around covid restrictions and all of that sort of stuff and i think it's going to be you know there's going to be the the first kind of first responders or the people like me who are rushing out and then once we've kind of paved the way and made sure it's clear and safe then people will begin to feel a bit safer to come out and, and you know maybe first to go to your local restaurant you know stay where you feel comfortable and um or kind of get deliveries in and then move out at a, at a, at a broader at a slower pace so I think it's going to be a mixed bag but um I think it's fine if people just allow themselves, you know, give yourself the grace to know that we've spent a year being told how terrifying and, and risky it is to go outside. To suddenly have those restrictions lifted doesn't mean we're suddenly going to feel safe again. We're going to need a little bit of time, as Carolyn said, for that mattress to come back up and for us to feel like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to go and I'm ready to re-engage. Yeah, um, do my usual flow and now come into Carolyn. Um, that, thinking about restaurants at the moment are you know, outdoors we're doing this you know, at the point in lockdown is you know, still just outdoor eating and you touched on it earlier and I'd like us to pro probe into it here about the physicality of cities towns mm. at the moment we're talking about street dining and so all over central London you see streets being kind of closed off and pedestrianized so that you know ha happily restaurants can you know have their tables outside and I'm interested 
uh, and you know, the borough market too, you know, there's loads of alfresco, you know, eating spaces. But I'm really curious about your take on that, what that means for city life, what communities. Um, well, you know where I'm headed, you, you go it. Yeah, I think I, there's such, again, a huge and important question. I mean, I think, you know, for me, I mean, I weirdly in, in my book, Zootopia, which came out literally the, the week the pandemic was declared, there's a whole chapter, as you know, which talks about the relationship between the city and the country. And I was saying we need a rebalancing between these two parts of our lives. And very ironically, because we've now discovered you can work from home, we've seen, you know, historically for the first time ever, there are more people in London looking to move out than there are people outside London looking to move in, which is really interesting. So, and of course, we've also seen, I mean, from my point of view, actually very tragically, the demise of, you know, enormous kind of icons of the high street like Debenhams and so on. So I think, you know, the question of what the city is for is really, really important. And again, as, as, as Kimberly and Anna have both mentioned several times, indeed, you know, I think it's something we all very much share. You know, we have this human need to come together and to sense what we are as a group, you know, and that is within our own family group, but also as a much bigger group, which is, if you like, society or London or whatever it is. And, um, you know, I think the, the, the need for that will not go away. But, you know, what is going to actually occupy the space in the middle of the city, you know, with all of these businesses closing down with so many big office offices, you know, like sort of HSBC sort of saying, oh, well, we're not going to require our workers to come in. I mean, you know, restaurants need that footfall. They, you know, they need the kind of the throughput of workers. So I think the jury's slightly out as to the degree to which that kind of thing is going to come back. Oh. For me, food, yet again. What's your gut instinct on that, Karen? And what do you well, think? it's going to be half and half. You know, it's going to be, I think, within, in 10 years' time, you know, all being well, um, you know, it, it will be kind of back to where it was, but I think it's going to take a long time. Um, and meanwhile, I think there's going to be lots of hybridizations and rethinkings. And one of those is obviously going to have to be the question of what's the high street now that it's not just wall-to-wall shopping anymore. I mean, we've seen with the queues outside Primark and so on, you know, there is that, you know, people do get a buzz out of just being there with, you know, with their carrier bags on the bus and all the rest of it. I think that will all come back. But, you know, I think that there is going to be a gap in the city. And for me, food is one of the obvious things that's going to fill that gap. And I think, you know, we're going to see the evolution of new kinds of food space that are more like a food hub or they're like a food center where maybe you can go and learn how to cook. Maybe Kimberly could come and do some demonstrations, um, you know, or indeed Anna, um, you know, so I can imagine sort of re-inhabiting a Debenhams with amazing food spaces and food halls, and then maybe kind of, you know, apartments above or something like that. And I think it's going to be, I mean, whatever happens to the future of the city, one thing is for sure, you know, food is going to be a massive, massive part of how that public space gets reanimated. Yeah. And I think now, again, is the time to get really inventive about what that is. Can we join that up to all of these new local food networks that Anna was talking about? You know, that it seems to me those two things go naturally together. I mean, funnily enough, I'm just right now writing an article for the you know, the global uh, union of, of wholesale markets and sort of saying, what is the future of wholesale markets going to be? Um, so my mind's very much in these kinds of issues. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's an amazing opportunity to rethink, you know, local food systems, sociability, how food can animate the centre of cities. And, you know, that we, we need to do this thinking because, again, as I say, it's a moment that we need to seize before something else happens we might like less yeah, I think I think that's really right, and we have to seize it rather than just hope. These yeah, things. yeah, no, it's seize it's it's carpe carpe foodem. I love that carpe foodem. That's brilliant. Um, but it was interesting, yeah, you know, and Borough Market that you feel that the local community, you know, obviously central London, but it feels like the local community who live around there have really, really enjoyed actually being able to 
embrace the the, the local produce aspect yeah. of having you know a, a, a food market just in their area because they haven't you know when we when people were you know really limited about where travel aspects there wasn't all the tourists which are so much part of the vibrancy of borough but it was very much you know about about serving its local community with the produce and I think feeling that within central London feels like something which can then you know expand and as you say can kind of give life in different ways mm, I think that would be fantastic um, um sorry no um we have uh, a few questions coming in which I would try and get to in our remaining 10 minutes um Karen a question about growing communities mm. um and whether that may pose the answer uh, to a local food system I love growing communities I, I have a bit of history with them because I gave a lecture 20 years ago um ish probably a bit less 15 years ago um about you know how how cities have been fed historically and I talked about Fontunen um, so Johann von Thunen was the first person to analyse how the productive hinterland of a city would evolve. And, you know, so it's all about fruit and veg near the city and then grain growing and then animals further away because they could walk into market in essence. And Julie Brown, who I'm a huge, huge fan of, she was at that lecture and she saw the, the von Thunen diagram, which is basically a series of concentric circles. And she thought, we need something like that for now. So she created what I still think, I mean, in fact, I, I want to write about this, but you know, is she calls it her food zones, which is basically, it's asking the question, you know, for a city like London, so growing communities, people don't know, it's a wonderful, it started off as an organic box scheme and then it evolved into kind of local orchards, you know, actually buying the land and starting to grow fruit and veg for London again. But also, I mean, what she found was that people still wanted to eat bananas. So she agonized over this and then thought, oh, well, okay, you can have bananas, but they have to be fair trade. And I'm gonna stick notices in your box saying to you what the impact of the food you're eating is and you know encouraging people by educating them into eating more locally and sustainably so the food zones basically builds on that idea so you say what's currently grown in london what's currently grown in the southeast what's currently grown in the uk and europe and the rest of the world and then what could be grown in all of those areas and then how can we as it were expand the circles outwards so i think it's a really interesting idea as I say, I'd like to explore it more because I think it's the kind of systems thinking we need to be doing. But yeah, I mean, if anybody asks me, oh, have you got a good example of a local food company or grow or anything? I always send them to growing communities. So yes, I think they very much are on the, on the, on the right path. Interesting. Um, Anna, I'm going to come to you for this one because I think it's someone who's looking for um, ideas food-wise, and so I feel that you may be able to kind of give a few little nuggets. Um, we have a lady who is writing from Ireland, where restaurants and cafes are still closed, um, asking, what's the one dish that got you through lockdown? Lockdowns, plural, um, and desperate for new ideas. Do you want to give us a, a quick burst? Because there's a wonderful new produce just kind of around the corner seasonally. There is. We're in an exciting time. Actually, just to um, reiterate, Carolyn, their grown communities, that's where we get our veg from. And just I'm just such a huge fan of everything they do. So, um, yeah, just a little tooting of the horn for them. Um, but, um, yes, what's the dish that got us through lockdown? Weirdly, for us, it was pizza. Um, <laughs> we, um, <laughs> we, I, <laughs> so not the answer I was expecting, Anna, but brilliant. Love you because that was the answer. Once a week, I made um some but well, we did we did a sourdough pizza but it, you know it could have been any type of dough we all got involved we all made dinner we all felt it felt special it felt different it sort of felt like we were sort of having a, a restaurant experience at home um it was something that was really democratic in in terms of the fact that everyone around the table absolutely loved eating it we obviously ate it with delicious salads and lots of veg and interesting toppings um but it was just that kind of thing that felt like an event um and that actually more than any other sort of one dish um kept our spirits up I think I don't think it was the food it was the experience of feeling like there was something special that we were doing once a week um I'm just gonna I'm gonna come back Anna but I feel like I have to come to Kimberly on that idea <laughs> Um, it's not just about the dish, it's about the experience and the event. Yeah, no, it, it's precisely that. But the thing that you remember often about, you know, birthday cake isn't, oh, well, it's an excellent balance of sugar and in the jam. <laughs> <laughs> 
it was the people around the table and how it felt and what that experience was and the emotions that then become kind of embodied of, of safety, of comfort, of communion, of, and those, when you think back and look at the memory, that's what's was reignited. Not, mm, I remember exactly how that tasted. When we remember at the taste, we're actually remembering feelings. Oh, such a lovely image you paint there, Anna, of you guys having your pizza. Do you have a pizza oven or were you just doing it in a domestic oven, normal oven? Well, we, I've been doing it in a bit of both. The, uh, my mum and dad, they've got one of those little outdoor pizza ovens. But here I've just been doing it in the normal oven on a, you know, on a baking stone. And, you know, also it was a nice, it was a nice progression. I felt really, I felt like I was getting better and better and better. And I was learning, you know, really in touch with my kitchen in a way that I felt like I hadn't been for a very long time. You know, the nuances of my oven, you know, the, 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 the way my hobs sort of worked and went up and down, you know, cooking all day, every day, which it did feel like I was doing quite a <laughs> I was just at one. It was more like a sort of choreography around the kitchen and I really enjoy it when I'm kind of in that space. Yeah. Um, in terms of other ideas for our lovely friend in Ireland, um, yeah, we're coming into such, well, obviously there's, yeah, thank you, Angela. There's a few ideas in there. Um, but yeah, um, we're coming into the spring produce now, which is so, so, so exciting. So the one dish I love cooking um, at this time of year is kind of vignarola or vignole, which is, you know, the artichokes, peas, asparagus stock. You know, the classic one has, has a layer of um, prosciutto on the top. Obviously, I skip that. I use a bit of smoked salt instead. Um, but that I feel like is, you know, it's easy enough to cook. It's a bit of a treat. And I think it would be making the most of some of the amazing things that are about to pop up. Absolutely. Um, we have, uh, I'm going to try and fit in um, another question. It's a, it's a bit of a biggie. Um, lady, uh, maybe not a lady, I don't know why I presumed it was a lady. I think it's because the other questioners have been. Um, a person uh, has written about when lockdown started and small businesses, as we talked about before, were doing lots of delivering. Prices were beyond a lot of people's means um, and it felt that there were people who were very keen to support small businesses and buy the food that's traceable, perhaps more nutritious. But for many, the only option is, of course, supermarket shopping. Do you think the space between the two extremes has been widened by the pandemic? Um, Carolyn, maybe we come to you. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, the fourth chapter of my book, Zootopia, which, by the way, I should explain what Zootopia is because it's probably totally obscure to people. It means food place. So the sit is sitos is the Greek for food, um, and um, yes, sitos. Thank you, Angela. Obviously, saying wrong. Um, how food can save the world. Yes, indeed, indeed. And the fourth chapter of this, which nearly killed me to write, is about sharing. It's about society, but it's really about how we share. And obviously, at the core of that is economy. And what is economy? Well, I mean, weirdly, the word itself comes from economos, which means uh, household management in Greek. And it's actually about how you feed your household from a farm. So weirdly, the basis of the word economy is, is food. Um, we've forgotten that. And, you know, what I'm really arguing in the book is that we have to revalue food. That's the one key thing we have to do. And everything else that we've been talking about today kind of will follow from it. But as I said earlier, it's a revolutionary idea because clearly you can't put the value back in food, which means it's all more expensive. And then say to the, the bottom fifth of the population who can't afford it, tough, tough, you know. So, so in order to do this, we have to have tax reform. You know, so it's really sort of saying everybody in society deserves to eat well. I mean, by the way, it's important to say that good food doesn't have to cost a lot of money. You know, I mean, this is Carlo Petrini's great point about cucina povera, you know, one of the great cuisines of the world, which is Italian peasant cooking. It's about eating absolutely everything, including the knobbly bits, you know. And, 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 you know, as both Anna and Kimberly would know, you know, if you look at your bill when you've been shopping, it, the expensive bits are booze, meat and dairy. You know, pretty much everything else is, and, and vegetables are just crazy cheap and delicious. So we can eat well without spending much money, but that's not to say that it's not an issue. So... I am arguing that we need to put an end to cheap food because it doesn't exist anyway, and we're just paying all the costs for it externally, like climate change. And by the way, like zoonotic pandemics, like COVID, they are an externality of cheap food because we basically have reduced the biodiversity of our landscape down to a point where such pandemics can make the leap. 
Um, but, you know, I am saying absolutely, yes, yes, it has got worse under COVID and yes, it is an issue. And yet again, now is our opportunity to address this and say it, it's outrageous that the fifth largest economy in the world has, you know, something like two million people using food banks. This is completely bonkers. Of course, that's partly to do with the bounce back from COVID and loss of jobs, but it, it was already endemic before. So we must tackle this. Karen, I think you have just summed us up and wound us up um, completely brilliantly. There is a moment to be seized and we need to talk more and think more and act more. Um, and you know, maybe we can you know, enact some long-term change which will benefit all of us you know, and, and our environment in the widest and indeed in the smallest sense as well. You guys have been, um, as anticipated, completely brilliant. I mean, we have rattled through, but we sort of did get to everything, I think, even if in only sort of a breezing over and hopefully, but giving people enough of an idea about what the things are to delve into more. Um, and I would really encourage everybody who is watching, listening to delve more into the work of all these ladies, Kimberly's book, How to Build, How to Build a Healthy Brain, isn't it? That's right, which is about food, but also so much, all of Anna's books. Carolyn's books so you will um, get so much if you don't have these ladies works on your bookshelves there, there are holes there fill those holes um it's been really really great to talk to you thank you so much all of you for taking part um I feel that our talks third series has got off to a complete smash um we are back in where we're now we're in April now so we're back in May which is about food and travel um when travel is uh, internationally at least a little bit um, uncertain at the moment and thinking about the uh, what are we missing by uh, not being able to do that and they're thinking about some cultural aspects around those things so we have uh, Yasmin Khan and Russell Norman joining us for that and then um, in June we have another small topic uh, we're delving into the meat versus non-meat debate uh -huh. <laughs> yes thank you Carolyn Sorry. Uh, <laughs> a small one uh, Anna I might ask you back um, <laughs> small topic there which I think is going to be completely fascinating we have Tom Hunt um, joining us along with Jan McCourt who is a butcher at Northfield Farm at the market and we're going to have a really positive conversation about all the issues around um, meat non-meat so uh, it's fabulous to be back with Borough Talks huge thanks again to Kimberly, Carolyn and Anna and to all of you for watching um, and listening but for now um, thank you and goodbye from Borough Talks <laughs>